back. Join me for Act Two of my conversation with the brilliant Simon Russell Beale. Here he is. Here's Simon. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. Act Two of today's performance of Stage Door Johnny is about to begin. Do you mind if I ask you about Hamlet and your mum? Would you, if you don't want to talk about no, it, I no. don't really know, knowing you as I did, this is one of the things I, I don't really know the intimate stories of your life. And it's one of the things that one doesn't want to pry into, but I'm also, just because of who you are, and You're welcome. I'm terribly <laughs> curious about it. You know, well, mum, you... I mean, the, the, you're, you're being very nice and kind, because there was a period when... I thought I would stop talking about oh. mum dying. No, not, that was long ago when we were doing Hamlet. Right. What happened is that mum got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, which, as everyone knows, is an absolute horror, mm. and was dead within months of the diagnosis. Wonderful woman, in my eyes, of course, and in her, brought her children's eyes. And it was a devastating thing for the whole family. And she knew I was going to do Hamlet. And that horrible thing when people are dying, when she said, I will make it. And I knew the dates had changed. So, you know, you can't say to mum, it's in June now, it's not in May or whatever it was. So she, she didn't see it. And of course, on the first night, the press night, I said to the cast, I know this is a bit odd, but is it possible for me to have a picture of my mother on in the wings of a theatre, you very often have a table where all the props are laid. So I said, it's possible to have the picture of mum on the prop table. And they basically said, of course. And I remember thinking of not being nervous, actually. I wasn't nervous that first night. And I thought, I don't really care, <laughs> actually. And I remember before I went on, I said, because oh, it was weeks after. And I said, mum, I miss you and I wish you were here. And then I went on and did it. Because in those days, I used to read the reviews. I'm, I'd still read them, but I'm less, you know, I don't get up at four in the morning and rush to Victoria Station to get the early editions, which I used to do. Gosh, yeah. Um, but no, I don't do that. But that was the first time I ever went, I don't care. I really don't care. It's my homage to her. And um, the interesting thing, of course, I, I said to my family, I have the luck to do one of the greatest plays about grief ever written. And I can do it for her and when you come and see it you'll see I'm doing it for her and I felt my youngest brother said I wonder whether your hand would have been different if mum hadn't died my dad died 48 hours before I started rehearsing Anthony I don't know if you felt any of this but I found it almost unendurable actually the combination is what I mean grief certainly my grief for my dad was a sort of it is a sort of form of madness temporary or not I'll come back to that. <laughs> right. And, you know, when you are pouring the kerosene of this extraordinary piece of work, this piece of art, this, this thing that demands that you reach this sort of emotional pitch, which ends with Anthony killing himself, botching the job in this brilliant way. It, it, it sort of actually became, I thought, I, I have so many regrets about that production in so many different ways, but, you know, Where so you know, Swan, and then we went to the public theatre in, in New York. 
a brilliant young actor who just won the Tony when you won the Tony, Joaquina Calacanga. Oh. Do you remember the woman who brought the house down singing? You may have been backstage doing interviews, but she brought the house down singing a bit from a musical, which the name of which escapes me, that she stopped the show, raised the roof off Radio oh. City Music Hall. I think I missed that. And she, she was my Cleopatra, the most extraordinary young actor, but it was a sort of May to September much younger than me, Cleopatra, which the dynamic of it was also, lots of it was, was sort of, that's yeah, Cleopatra, famously difficult thing to get away anyway. Anyway, I regret it in lots of ways, but mostly because I felt it was not very fair on me and not very fair on the rest of the show, that there was this, the amount that I was feeling, I didn't think was ultimately helpful to doing the piece. Yeah, well, you see, of course, I had, as I said earlier, I had, I had the perfect claim for that. And it sounds ruthless, doesn't it? I just took the experience huh. and went. I mean, I don't know whether I could have done Anthony Cleopatra or uh, Benedict after Mama's right. death in, in quite the same, right. with, as you say, I'm feeling, I, I think I would have felt unstable. And the, 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 I had only two ideas. Before I started, I had only two ideas, one of them negative, one of them positive. And the positive one is I didn't want to obsess you saw my mother in the in the yes. trip, so I thought, hang on, there's no evidence for that at all. <laughs> I'm far too middle class. To <laughs> well, you, you, you said that in an interview, and I wanted to ask, will you tell me about the other revelation, then I want to come back to that, about being too middle class, because I've read it or heard it in an interview you did. And I wanted to ask about that, or let's ask, I'll ask now. What, the know, middle class? Well, just about, do, do you ever wish that there was a sort of inner Stanley Kowalski yes. that didn't feel like that, that you weren't bound by who you are? And, and well, is there a... well I, I, I regularly fixate on somebody, if I can see the audience, on somebody, and they're usually male, and they're usually of a particular age, and they're usually quite fashionably dressed in a sort of understated way, who I assume is looking at me going in a middle-class prat. And I don't know why I'm watching it. Regularly. I mean, about once every two months. You can see them. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I can see the look on their face. And they're just going, yeah. And are you aware of lots of members of the audience? Or do you just somehow no, have sonar? It's, find it's, I find it's a, it's a funny laser. Wow. But I can, find, I can find them and assume. You know, and very often they clap very nicely at the end. So yeah. it's not, it's my creation very often. But, yeah, the idea that I'm not uh, radical enough in my thinking because of how I was brought up and who I am and how I was educated, that I'm not radical enough, right. uh, that is a great worry. The madness thing, to come back to the madness thing, I, I didn't know what to do about madness. Perhaps, again, this is about being middle class. I didn't know how I represented that. And then, of course, suddenly realised... As, in fact, I know Andrew Scott felt when he played Hamlet recently, because I was talking to somebody who was in the company about it, that he's not mad at all, Hamlet. North by Northwest. North by Northwest. And if that isn't an accurate description of grief, and I know you probably read me saying this, but that's grief, isn't it? Yeah, completely. And because I decided that, as it sounds with your father, but I decided that Hamlet loved his dad. Yeah, that was a very interesting thing about, how, again, about, it's linked with um, not having preconceptions, trying to get rid of preconceptions. But sometimes there's it's Occam's razor. When you say, what is the simplest reading of this? The simplest reading of this relationship is that he adored his father. They're equally valid, but 
that's slightly more complicated. He loves him, but you know, he's threatened by warmonger. Yeah, but in my version, it was no. He just really loved him, and yeah, he was a great dad. And <laughs> by the way, you can really love him even if he wasn't a great yeah, dad. Yeah, indeed, exactly. And maybe it's more because he was... yeah, yeah. But in other words, but the grief, the grief was profound yeah. and genuine and yeah. mad north northwest. Yeah. It never derailed you in the way that it did yeah. famously to Denver Day Lewis. Right? No, no, no. Okay. Perhaps because of mum and not dad. I don't know. And I'm always intrigued by this business of who we're doing it. I mean, it's amazing that you pick out this play for two months. Always, it's always got it's exactly the same. He's <laughs> <laughs> usually got dark hair. He's got dark hair. Yeah, you do. That's so fascinating. <laughs> I'm so interested in who we do it for. I mean, you've talked so brilliantly about the sense of identifying with an audience, with a looker, meaning we're sort of sharing a consciousness when you have those moments at the end of Constantine before he shoots himself or Hamlet at the end of his life. What is it like for you now? Is your dad's film? Yeah. Okay. What, what, did you feel like you were doing it for a particular this Hamlet. Well, no, anything really. I'm talking about what drives us on stage and keeps us there. Is there a sense that we're doing it for somebody who's looking at us in a particular way? Did you act differently, for example? Or did you feel anything particularly extra special when your folks were watching you, when your dad stuck on oh, the Well, I'll, I'll come fi- finally to two, not one, but about Seagull, which is Terry's note to me in the oh, Seagull, yeah. which is the best note I've ever had. And he was what obviously watching me, and he said, uh, can I have a word? He said, I'm not talking about your real mother or your real father, but if you, if I asked you who do you act for, your father or your mother, what would you answer? And I said, okay, a sort of amalgam mother, right. a, a combination mother and a combination mother, not the real thing, but a mother figure. And I said, well, I suppose for my mother. And he says, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, I suppose... I want to be loved. And uh, he said, well, I want you to spend the next week acting for your father as Constantine, by which I read he meant impressive, an achiever, something he can be proud of. I suppose obviously nobody is about my real mother and my real father. But, you know, if you're playing a failed writer like Constantine, Mm. of course, that is a transformative note, because instead of going, mummy, love me, it's written on the page. It's daddy, absent daddy. Approve of me, and I'm a great writer. God, it was a brilliant, brilliant note. It was a brilliant note, and he and it, yeah, it transformed the whole whole thing. But also, doesn't that kind of put its finger on this business about being too middle class in your phrase to you know to do the sort of version of the closet scene in Hamlet where the ghost appears, where he sort of there's a sort of sublimated sexual longing for his mother, which is a very you know this is a sort of performance trope, right, that's built up around, around Hamlet. But when you are asked to think about mother, not your real mother and father, how it's like saying elephant and not thinking of elephant, it's, it's sort of impossible, right, for us to divorce ourselves from the things that we actually are. So how much of a sort of source of regret is it for you not to be someone else? And how much of a source of celebration is it that, that you are you in this extraordinarily multifarious and profound way, which has had the ridiculously lauded career that you have? Well, I suppose the, you see, the thing is, I'm not really, 
and this is not being modest or anything, I'm not really aware of the second bit. I mean, uh, the first bit, you know, I look at other actors with enormous you know, desire to be, to be as creative and as off-centre as they are. And I, I, but to be fair to myself, I know on occasion I can, I have done that, but not sort of, not necessarily deliberately. And and when I say, you know, there's the Ockham razor thing of saying, what's the simplest option? The simplest option, of course, for me will always be something to do with my own background and life and my upbringing. And so very often it'll be, I'm not going to roll about on the bed with my mum. I'm just not, because that's, for me, not the simplest option. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a very interesting one because, as you say, it's become such a trope and we know where it came from and we know when it started. And was it, it was, yeah, it was Ernest Jones. Right. It was the Freudian pupil who famously did the Oedipal thing on But anyway, yeah, so very often the, the simplest option for me will inevitably be Privately educated middle class. We must tell this fantastic, famous theatre story, but for anyone who hasn't heard it, there was a brilliant production of Wind in the Willows. Do you remember do you know the story at the National? I think I know the story, but tell it. Yes. What you told it in so many I'm going to carry on telling it. There was a wonderful actor in the company called Michael Bryant, who was the sort of linchpin of the National Theatre for decades. And he was playing Badger. He, there was a movement coach who was a side to all these to make you know them move physically like the the animals in the piece. And he was given videos of badgers. He came back after the weekend. He was supposed to watch them and put them on the table and said, "I've discovered something very interesting. Badgers move exactly <laughs> like Michael Bryant." <laughs> he decided yeah. to do it as himself. But well, you see that you see as as you. It's a famous story, and I got to know Mike in this last years. In mm-hmm. fact, yeah, I rather clumsily and made a very clumsy speech. His ashes are divided because you say he was an absolute stalwart to the National Theatre, and his ashes are divided between buried in the Coslo, the Littleton, and the Olivier. And his wife Judy said, "Would I do the ceremony for them into the Littleton?" But that thing about, and I'm aware that probably my tendency is to pull the part towards me. I mean, my point is simply when, like when Terry asks you, don't think about your real mother or father, it's just an impossibility. I mean, of course, we all want to feel that we're protean shapeshifters who are able to transform it. But essentially, we are viewing the world through a prism that can only yeah, be our absolutely. consciousness, which has yeah, been formed by who we are. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose you've just got to accept that and hope that. What? Well, well, we know the parts that don't fit. So you know, you you the, must you must know as someone who's watched you over the years. You must know that you are the most surprising actor. Whatever whatever that bloke with the dark hair <laughs> is thinking of you. I'm here to tell you. Never have I seen you do a part and not been taken aback by something that is utterly unlike you. Never have I not seen a new aspect of you. And that's what I want. The new aspect of you, for example, in this is Borkman. I don't feel like, oh, I'm watching Simon say some different words now. I feel like something is utterly transformative. Anyway, look, talking about other actors and about admiring them, it's so funny, isn't it, how memory works and now we're both so fucking old. 
you know, uh, at COVID and things get all sort of wobbly, you know, it's sort of once recall. But do you remember us being in Joe Allen's on, I want to say, the last night or maybe the first night of the real thing at the time? <gasps> Stephen yeah, Delaney. Stephen Delaney and Jennifer Ely. Yeah. Brilliant production by yeah. David Laveau, I think. I have a memory, and again, this might be all wobbly in my brain, of you asking Stephen how he did it. So you remember, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong well, about this. You see, well, yeah, no, I, I remember, I remember, I don't remember the actual, was it dinner? Or something or party, yeah, um, but I remember the performance. Oh, Jesus, God, yeah. I mean, if and I've said this for many years of, of my generation of actors, he he's the one that has the same effect on me that Paul Schofield in, in yeah, Boston did. Yeah. I look at him, I think I don't know, I really don't know how he did that. Right. And that real thing, yeah, I think he's he's yeah, that was extraordinary. He's the, just extraordinary, top dog. But you know, others. Because as you, as you were talking, I was thinking, I didn't have, because I didn't see any theatre when I was younger particularly, I didn't have any of the older role models. So when people go, oh, who was your great hero? I didn't have any. Right. So Olivia Gilgan, which, nothing like that. People I looked at, perhaps Gambon, but were Stephen, Delaine, Kenneth Banner, Mark Rylands, and all of them have given me, I mean, uh, for, for different reasons, um, Stephen, because I simply didn't know how he delivered it. Right. Well, I think it maybe isn't untrue then that you might have said a version or something like that. And my point is simply that you, Sir <laughs> Russell, <laughs> more plays that Wikipedia can count, are still going to somebody else as though you've never even seen a play, let alone been so in one. How did you do it? Well, you must get that. I mean, I, I remember seeing Kenneth Branagh doing a mammoth play in the Olivier. Oh, That's a theatre I know Edmund. very, very well, Edmund. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, I don't, again, I don't know how you've done that because you've managed to, you've managed to speak completely, apparently naturalistically. Of course, it wasn't naturalistic at all. But somehow you've made this, and it was before we all started miking. Yeah, I don't know how he did it. Mm. And I probably said the same thing to him that like I said to Steve, is I don't, I really don't know how, I don't know how he did that. Mm. To let you go soon. I could honestly, I could talk no. to you as I said to you before. My wife asked me, Do you have enough, do you have enough time to research Simon? I said, I could, I could ask you things for weeks. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to give you a list of questions that we didn't even get to. Okay. And you can answer any one of these just to finish us off. Any one? Yeah. Unless you want to <laughs> do the ball. Uh, 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 done that last sort of. What do you dislike most about theatre? That's one question. If you wanted to answer, hold on, you don't have yep. to do it. So, this is, this is probably a bit boring, but when I saw you walking off into the Amundsen Theatre in LA and was struck by this sense of, I had no idea. What Again, a bit like a kid asking, or you, don't worry, just keep the mics as well. You asking Stephen Delaney, how do you do it? I mean, in that moment, I was someone who didn't understand what an actor did because mm. something about it seemed so about coming back after lockdown and something seems so mysterious. And the fact that you seem like such an enigma for me. So I wanted to know what does go on, what your sort of rituals are, what you need to do to make the thing work. So that's another question. Okay. Do you, when you come out of the stage door, do you ever think, another fucking stage door? Matthew Broderick said something rather brilliant on this thing where he said, he said, when I get to a, a point of familiarity with a piece, boredom, is what I'm really trying to say. 
Simon is nodding his head. Yeah. Okay. And what is the hardest? What was the hardest piece to do? And what was the most fun? What are the parts that you're haunted by? Let's leave it about. Um, so I want to ask, answer all those. Uh, what, I hate, what I hate about I hate about theatre. Yeah. I mean, Matthew is Roderick is is sort of right. I mean, repetition and therefore boring yourself. Boring yourself is a tricky one. And actually, I've been better when I started. I was much, much. I was much stricter about uh, repetition. Now I'm 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 probably gone too much the other way, especially in, in the John Baker Walk, which I'm doing at the moment, which I'm literally making up as I go along now. Since you saw, yeah, the, the writer came in yesterday. I said, I'm so sorry. I had a shit at that line. She said, I noticed. I said, I know, I just felt like it. So I'm, I'm much better now at, at throwing things around. And of course, if you, you, you have to have the trust, obviously, of actors, and, but you can develop that idea. And I love it when somebody throws something else at me. So Leah Williams, she's playing one of the other parts in book when we have a very long scene and it's never the same now, thank God. So that stays off. Matinees. Sorry. I found out to my to my absolute delight that when I did that play you mentioned earlier, London Assurance, mm. um, Dion Boussico was the writer. And he invented the matinee. No. That bastard. So I have a focus. But of course, actually, what's so awful is the matinees are very often some of our best performances. And there am I, hypocritically, love going to matinees. Yeah, me too. But also, the so, matinee makes the exhaustion on the Saturday night when you're carrying Cordelia. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a sort of, it's a necessary part to yeah. getting in a weird way to that exhausted moment. Yeah, where and those, those pints of beer after oh, the second God. carrying on of Cordelia yeah. are the best drinks yeah. ever. Yeah. So, yes, actually doing them matters. In terms of, um, I have a very, very simple routine. I have to do the same thing every time. From, what, from the first time I ever do it, I have to do exactly the same things. Boots have to go on the same way, and mm. yeah, but that, but it's not really a. It's just re- repetition, and I always have a nap. How long before curtain? I leave myself two hours before curtain. So yeah, three hours before. Stimulants? Are we using stimulants? <laughs> I what? Well, I imagination. Was, well, I was in the I was in the RSC company when 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 Anthony Sher was chopping up lines of curtain. Oh right, well. You know, and, um, I, being such a square, didn't know this was happening. <laughs> Coffee, no. I'm sort of talking about. Or some no. people use, you know, pro plus or no. sort of artificial energy givers. Look, when I was at university, same place you went, and I had to revise my final exams, I think I took about seven pro plus one evening. Right. Which I'm still better asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> still awake. <laughs> so, so I don't know whether that would ever work. Um, no, I don't. I don't. In fact, I don't drink a lot of coffee after the, the morning coffees or any coffee. Don't seem to have any similar. What were the other questions? There was some, uh, um, what was the most fun to do? Oh, fun! So, say, what was the most? What was the hardest? And then the last one was what? What were you haunted by? Oh, God, there's so many that were fun. Next productions of. Much Ado, oh. which I think was one of the most glorious, golden oh. things I've ever been in. It was golden. It was, it was sunlight. And, and very rarely for Nick, he, he set it in, um, in the 1590s. So it had that sort of romantic, oh, that was beautiful. You were famously uh, in the going scene. You were famously hidden in a, under, underwater in a pool on stage. I, I've never had so much fun. 
in, in a desperation to hide, he jumped into an ornamental pool. <laughs> and then it was it was devised that I I could be underneath apparently underneath the water for an unconscionably long time. So the people who were gulling me, the three men who were genuinely got worried because I <laughs> thought I must have drowned. Oh God! I, and I, then I had to do a soliloquy in the pool, and I thought this is what actors do at home; they do soliloquies in their bath, don't they, on the shower? Well, I remember very early on I was doing The Seagull, which was one of the sort of moments of my life when my uh, career changed. For Terry Hands. For Terry Hands, we were talking about earlier. And um, um, anyway, I think Constantine who ends up shooting himself. And I phoned my dad one day and he, and I, he said, how are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm just feeling a bit low. He said, well, you're committing suicide every night. Of course you're going to be feeling that. And it, I'd never made the link. And I, I assumed that I was... That had nothing to do with my real life, but it was interesting that Dad said that. That you know, he, I wouldn't have expected him to say that, and he and I thought, you know, you might be right. Can I talk about the seagull for a bit? Because it's I'd love to ask you about it. <laughs> yeah, because there's a famous sequence in that, and I don't remember quite how long it's for. But before you go and commit the act, which you just described, you cleared your desk. You were silent. Funny if we talked about silence earlier with kind of a query in terms of society just gobbling on Ajax's breakfast. But you were silent for minutes. I'd have to check this, but I think in the original Chekhov play, he asked for two minutes. I'm just It's a four-act play. And Terry, he'd never done Chekhov before. It was his first Chekhov. The great Sufi was playing yes. her last performance before she died, was playing our cardinal, um, Roger Allen. French girl and Amanda Root, a, 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 an astonishing Nina. Anyway, it's four acts. The first three acts, he rehearsed, 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 rehearsed. He never did look to the fourth act. And the fourth act is essentially just a, a, a tiny little scene. That, and then there's a big scene, which is basically Nina doing her famous um, sequence about being a seagull. He, he, he didn't rehearse it. And then on the final week, he just went, look, that's the card table. That's your desk. Go. And of course, it was mostly on Amanda doing Nina. That was, but it was extraordinary because he'd built up all the, the material, all the information, and that, it was never rehearsed. It was, as, as I remember, they, they might have a different memory of this, but it was never rehearsed. Gosh. Amanda did it, and that was it. But I do remember him saying, Chekhov asks for, say it's two minutes. Well, so it was a huge amount of time. Incredible amount of time. Yeah. If we would stop talking about <laughs> two minutes, it would seem eternal. Yeah. I know this is a little parenthesis, but I do remember a, a director once saying to me, you put to the cast, you put two minutes on the show, I want you to sit here for two minutes and see what that feels like for the audience. <laughs> um, so I was given, um, uh, Nina goes off, his life is devastated, and he prepares to shoot himself. And uh, there were various things like, he said, I want you to see if you can fill two minutes. Let's see if you can do it. And I cleared my desk. I mean, I'm sure I didn't do it all in the first round, but there were various things. I cleared my desk where I had my writing. I went to break a pencil. And I thought, that's a waste of time. So I put that pencil back. And I remember talking to my mother, who was GP, about suicide. It's funny what we talk about. And she said, oh, I, I, I always check for alcohol and whether the 
one of the things that is common is uh, whether they wear glasses because nobody kills himself with glasses on. So I remember thinking, thank you, Mum, that's very interesting because my character wore glasses. So he tidied up his desk, he took off his glasses, put them in his pocket, and then I ran out of things to do. And I had, I mean, I think Terry must have been there with a stopwatch, yeah. And I thought, he's not going to let me go. He's not going to go, that's fine, great, off you go. And I just stood there for 45 seconds. And he allowed me to stand there. And I do remember when we talk about power, even I think school, I do remember when I first did on stage, that sense of um, absorbing all the concentrated energy from around the room into me. I can remember it now. So it's, it's like, it's like a, a meditative exercise or something. Right. It? But it was a concentration of energy from all those eyes. And then he went off and shot himself. But is that a pure distillation without words, without text, which you're so famous for, but is that a pure distillation of what you're getting back from what you're giving out and sharing with an audience? Do we feel like that's the sort of almost a kind of perfect version, in a way, of what brings, keeps bringing you back to the stage. Is there something in that? Well, it's it, interesting. The, the, when you were talking there, I was thinking about the end of Hamlet. The Hamlet I did was a sweet prince. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't anticipate where this Hamlet was going to go uh, when I started rehearsing it. Originally, I was going to be directed by Sam, but he mm. was off winning an Oscar, actually, at that time. Yeah, so I, he was forgiven for that. And I don't know what the Hamlet I would have done for Sam would have been like. This, the Hamlet ended up, I ended up doing What a Sweet Prince. And sort of, again, this sort of concentration at the end. He died standing up. John Caird was the director. I said, can I die standing up? So the very last thing is, you know, the rest of silence was said to Horatio standing up. And then he, as it were, turned his face to the wall. The thing of, of standing and again absorbing the, can I say love? Of those eyes. So in other words, saying, I, um, uh, both Constantine and Hamlet have this quality. I am you. You are me. We're in the same bubble, orbit, world, psyche. I don't know. But that's all I'm doing now is standing here. That's all I'm doing because we're the same. And both those parts ended up standing, just standing. Um, but that is what theatre does, isn't it? That's a perfect description of what theatre does. That sense of sharing something that you don't share, that thing of I am you. I can't think of another medium where the wall, the canvas, the screen is ripped down to the extent that you are standing on a stage, as you said, absorbing the energy of the people watching you. And we know somehow all of us at the same time, that we are the same person. Presuming that's how it started, isn't it? Right. Don't you think? I suppose. I presume so, you know, in Greece. Don't you think? I mean, that's what it was there for, presumably, to, it's obviously to say, but it's the physical proximity, isn't it, and the, and the, and the smell and the, the heat. And God knows it can go very wrong. Oh, <laughs> you know, and, uh, but the idea of saying we have a shared story, mm-hmm. even if it's a desperate story like the end of Lear, even if you're saying to the audience, you've been here, you've been here, as it were, God forbid you should actually go through this, but you have been here with the 
your, the corpse of your daughter in front of you. You know, that's mm. that type of despair. And the same thing with Hamlet. You know, Hamlet, the more wonderful thing about Hamlet, especially if it's a, a sweet prince, it's let be, isn't it? It's, it's let be. Come on, just let's all stop. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. All right, there goes Sir Simon Russell Beale off to get his two beers. <laughs> no one deserves two beers more than Simon. Oh, I'm so grateful to him. What a great way to end the season. The audio quality didn't matter, did it? He says, hopefully. I don't think it did. I really don't think it did. Maybe in a way it gave Simon that sort of, you know, Stanley Kowalski roughness, that sense of... uh someone messing with his beautiful instrument uh, that he's always wanted. And I'm so grateful to Simon for articulating in his usual sort of scalpel-like, brilliantly intelligent and gloriously big-hearted way, something that the podcast has, I think, tried to grope towards all season, which is this idea that, as he articulated it to do with Constantine, to do with Hamlet, in those moments of stillness when a, an audience is absorbing what a character is going through at this sort of high point of their journey on stage, that sense of mutuality, as Simon talked about it, the sense that Constantine is the audience and the audience is Constantine, that I am Hamlet, Hamlet is me. That is something we can only get from live performance. Seeing that moment right in front of us when we're there live and sharing it, that common humanity. What a wonderful way to finish this season by understanding that through Simon's eyes. I thought that was just wonderful. Thank you to him. Thank you. What a terrific treat that was. Stage Door Johnny is an off-script production. Um, Louise Berry, thank you so much for being the best executive producer. Ben Backhouse, thank you for being the best producer and day-to-day, week-to-week collaborator. Nick Abnett, thank you for saving my sorry audio ass with your brilliant tart-up work. I'm so grateful to you for doing that. Um, thanks to the, the, the musicians, Iggy Cake uh, for writing and playing the theme tune, Phoebe Cake for singing it so beautifully. I can now reveal that a friend of the podcast, Willem Dafoe, said, I can't get that theme tune out of my head. I can't listen to it anymore. So uh, if anybody else feels like that, perhaps we'll switch it up for season two. Perhaps a uh, disco remix. Who knows? Thanks to the stage manager for your support endlessly and for your dulcet tones. And thank you mostly to you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for taking this voyage of of exploration with me. 
and I'll be back in, I want to say, early June with season two. I've already got a fantastic roster of guests lined up. Please, please come back and join me. And if you have any theatre-inclined friends who don't know the podcast, please push it their way. If you can be bothered to rate and review the podcast, it really, really helps it. I'm so grateful to you for listening. It really has been enormously enjoyable for me. Terrifically meaningful, dare I say. And I can't wait to do it all again. Join me for season two. I really hope I see you then. Till then, please, if you can, support live theatre. It's in a parlous state right now. And you'll be restating why you think it's important. Hope you can, and I hope I see you in June. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny. But here is stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. He sits in the balcony. Sees plays sad and funny. That's stage, stage door, Johnny. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.